Thank you all for joining us on our continued reading of Anti-Oedipus here at the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective. Let me move my microphone a little bit more front and center. All right. Um, we are going to continue on page 302 from the paragraph. It follows that in the second place. Uh, we are going to do our best to try to make it through as much more as we can of this section. I do not expect us to get through it today. At some point around two hours from now, we will be stopping and taking a break uh, until this evening when we uh, mess around to watch everything happen around us. But for now, uh, did anyone, before I dive forward, did anyone have overnight questions or thoughts really quick on what had been read up to this point in this section? Any last things that we want to dive into or things to keep in mind as we move forward? I'm going to take that as a no. So then, uh, with that, I will just uh, dive in. It follows that, in the second place, the link between psychoanalysis and capitalism is no less profound than that between political economy and capitalism. This discovery of the decoded and deterritorialized flows is the same as that which takes place for political economy and in social production, in the form of subjective abstract labor, and for psychoanalysis and in desiring production in the form of subjective abstract libido. As Marx says, in capitalism the essence becomes subjective, the activity of production in general, and abstract labor becomes something real from which all the preceding social formations can be reinterpreted from the point of view of a generalized decoding or a generalized process of deterritorialization. To quote, the simplest abstraction, then, which modern economics places at the head of its discussions, and which expresses an immeasurably ancient relation valid in all forms of society, nevertheless achieves practical truth as an abstraction only as a category of the most modern society. End quote. This is also the case for desire, as abstract libido and as subjective essence. Not that a simple parallelism should be drawn between capitalist social production and desiring production, or between the flows of money capital and the shit flows of desire. Their relationship is much closer. Desiring machines are in social machines and nowhere else, so that the conjunction of the decoded flows in the capitalist machine tends to liberate the free figures of a universal subjective libido. In short, the discovery of an activity of production in general and without distinction, as it appears in capitalism, is the true is the identical discovery of both political economy and psychoanalysis beyond the determinate systems of representation. So I know we got into this a little bit yesterday in terms of like um, production being in the transcendental and that. Uh, what did you guys think of the line? Uh, as Marx says, in capitalism, the essence becomes subjective, the activity of production in general, and abstract labor becomes something real, from which all preceding social formations can be reinterpreted from the point of view of a generalized decoding or a generalized process of deterritorialization. Yeah, we talked about um, the meaning of subjective essence in in marxism um a few weeks ago right i'd still appreciate if anyone who actually knows marx could explain or hegel i think that's actually um a hegelianism um what the subjective essence of value means. 
I don't have that background myself, or I'd be glad to jump in. I'm hoping someone here has a better understanding of Marx. Uh, I'm not what I would call an expert, to say the least. Out of curiosity, Roger, can you tell us if um, in the French, that's basically what they're they're getting at is the, the subjective there? Uh, I don't have the French text open. Give me a few minutes. I'll try to find it. It's kind of difficult to actually like like reorder both texts at the same time, but I'll try to do it. Um, in the third manuscripts of... Uh, of uh, la, la, third manuscript, private property and labor of Marx, they say the subjective essence of private property, private property as activity for itself, as subject, as person, is labor. So the subjective essence of private property should be labor. I'll give oh, you the link. okay. That helps. Oh, so wait, okay. So the subjective essence is the abstraction. Because that's what they're talking about here, uh, at least in the paragraph. Uh, in capitalism, the essence becomes subjective, the activity of production in general, and abstract labor becomes something real from which all preceding social formations could be reinterpreted. Uh, so they say also, consequently, the subjective essence of wealth is already transferred to labor. But at the same time, agriculture is the only productive labor because it produces something and not just value. Uh, this, this is what I added. Uh, labor is therefore not yet grasped in its universal and abstract form, but is still tied to a particular element of nature as it matter, blah, blah, blah. So like basically the abstract form is capital in itself. You know, it's capital uh, unlinked from the object of, that is being produced. To quote uh, again from that uh, passage you linked, to this enlightened political economy, which has discovered within private property, the subjective essence of wealth, the adherents of the monetary and mercantile system who look upon private property only as an objective substance confronting men seem therefore to be fetishists and Catholics. I, I, I don't know Marx well enough, I'm sure that's a funny joke. Um, so it, it, we're talking essentially about uh, the abstraction of what the thing represents within the society. I, are they talking here about flows? In the Marx text or into the, the Deleuzing Watery in, text? In, in the Deleuzing Watery text. I don't think they actually, well, they will, they will talk about axiom and axiomatization after that, but uh, I don't think they talk about flows that much in, in the other. Well, no, that, no, but I mean, I mean, I mean, they do talk about flows a lot, but I, I'm, I'm referring specifically when they say this is also the case for desire as abstract libido and as subjective essence. Uh, not that simple parallelism should be drawn between capitalist social production and desiring production. It's not that. The relationship is much closer. Uh, desiring machines are in social machines nowhere else, so that the conjunction of the decoded flows in the capitalist machine tends to liberate the free figures of the universal subjective libido. So they're 100% they're talking about the decoded flows that are moving within these machines passing through. But when they refer to this, the simplest abstraction then, uh, which is what they're talking about of the subjective essence, which is labor, they're talking about that as being decoded? Yes, into decoded into capital. So basically like the subjective, you know, impulse, libido, whatever, like is being... Uh, decoded into a more universal type of libido. I, I don't know why they are using the same term for the two levels, but li the libido would be 
you know, uh, universalized into the design machines. I mean, they talk about um, the subjective essences a whole lot in the third chapter, like from um, page 258 on, it pops up all the time. It, it did a lot. I was reading it in terms, in light of what Roger said at the beginning, um, I was reading the subjective there in terms of like, so we've got labor value, which is our way of kind of talking about these things. But in talking about it, right, it's in reference to this general act of um, uh, of production, which is the general act of uh, capitalist production. Yeah. So like, if, if we're talking about labor value, even though like Roger said, it's detached from objects, and thereby it has a decoding and deterritorializing aspect, it also has this reference to um, capitalist production. And I go back to um, the line, as Marx says in capitalism, the essence becomes subjective. The essence of private property is wealth. Uh, to quote, wealth is something outside man and independent of him, and therefore as something to be maintained and asserted only in an external fashion, that is done away with. That is, this external mindless objectivity of wealth is done away with, with private property being incorporated in man himself and with man himself being recognized as its essence. Yeah, I think it's like saying, well, uh, labor is no longer on the outside of us, we're on the outside of labor, if that made sense. It doesn't actually, uh, that shouldn't make sense, but it, it does. That sounds like something someone would say when they're super high. Whoa, man, oh, man. what if it's not labor outside of us, but what if it's us outside of labor? And it works, actually. I'm taking that as a compliment. I don't care. <laughs> no, it's, 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 I mean, it, it, it makes sense. Um, okay. I just, uh, just got the French text and, um, as I was trying to find the place, uh, they say, I don't know what's the correct translation in English, but they say something that uh, we call libido, the energy that is proper, uh, to desiring machines. So libido is, is subjective, you know, and, uh, such in, in the in the same form as labor that it's something that is empirical something that is is there like it's an energy that is real but also it's something that is is into the level of the, the desiring machine but they're you know in their ontology they're still connected so there's no real disconnect it's just like a difference in degree i think that's basically what they are here spelling out is what um um, Holland basically said is the whole point of the book, right? Like showing that um, Freud is to uh, is to libido as um, Ricardo and Smith are to labor, and Luther was to faith or God, religion, whatever. Yeah, and with that, the three are no longer just parallel, they intersect, right? That is to say, right, they, they're very clear that this is not a parallelism, these are conjunctions. Yeah, it's the same conditions that enables each um, accountness. <laughs>
Right. So like, why, why worry about the unconscious and psychoanalysis? Well, it's part of political economy in this larger sense, or rather the two intersect. All right. I'm going to continue reading. Uh, I just found the place in French is the exact same formulation. So for subjective, it's, it's the same thing. Good to know. Then you're reading. Obviously, this does not mean that the capitalist being or the being in capitalism desires to work or that he works according to his desire. But the identity of desire and labor is not a myth. It is rather the active utopia par excellence that designates the capitalist limit to be overcome through desiring production. But why precisely is desiring production situated at the always counteracted limit of capitalism? Why, at the same time as it discovers the subjective essence of desire and labor, a common essence, inasmuch as it is the activity of production in general, is capitalism continually re-alienating this essence, and without interruption, in a repressive machine that divides the essence in two and maintains it divided? Abstract labor on one hand, abstract desire on the other. Political economy and psychoanalysis. Political economy and libidinal economy. Here we are able to appreciate the full extent to which psychoanalysis belongs to capitalism. For as we have seen, capitalism indeed has its limit, the decoded has as its limit the decoded flows of desiring production, but it never stops repelling them by binding them in an axiomatic that takes place of the codes. Capitalism is inseparable from the movement of deterritorialization. But this movement is exercised through factitious and artificial re-territorializations. Capitalism is constructed on the ruins of the territorial and the despotic, the mythic and the tragic representations, but it re-establishes them in its own service and in another form, as images of capital. So this is where you tell us about George Lucas and George and uh, the hero's myth, right? <laughs> it's a... Uh... I mean, it, it feels a, a lot of this chapter has been talking towards that mythology and um, most of my, if you want to call it my studies, where I try to apply a lot of this is in uh, sort of pop culture analysis and how stories are told now and how myth has changed over the last 40 years. And it's significant how myth has changed uh, since Star Wars. We have monolithic hero's journey concept that everything comes back to this same story and you can boil it down. If you're not familiar with the hero's journey, I recommend you look it up. It's depressing. Um, this feels like a lot of that to me. Uh, but I, the part I want to really focus on that I that I like when we're talking about the subjective, um, the, the line um, on one hand and then the other, political economy and libidinal, libidinal economy, uh, feels like a very sort of interesting separation given everything that's happening right now, where we talk about what people really want, what they desire in their personal lives versus the political and how that is sort of playing out. Maybe I'm diving in a weird direction. Does anyone have thoughts on this section, on this uh, paragraph? We're on uh, bottom of 302 into 303, delusional. 
Yeah, we, we talked about this later. I thought I think you were on a work call. Um, so it's it's our capital, for example, like re reestablishes itself as a meta narrative or a meta uh, meta machine that actually reintegrates everything that has been done in the past. So basically, it's a you know it it tells a story not of the the this the moment we're in, but it's you know it's um it's always building itself on the ruins of the past. So it's always something that is a little bit late. There's always a little bit of a lag. That's the same thing for psychoanalysis in the sense that it doesn't tell us about the present real, but it tells us about like a past real that we're trying to like cookie cut onto the present real. So capitalism is always a little bit laggy, but also as a form of... Uh, this is my own interpretation, but it propels us towards a new um, deterritorialization, a new set of possibilities. Nicely said. I just want to add to that too. Right, and with this lagging, it's in part, I think, related to this limit of decoded flows for desiring production, right? That it's always encountering this limit it's going to have to replace, it being capitalism. But at the same time, it's also repelling that, right? Displacing it by binding those limits with the axiom, right? So this decoding that's happening. So it's at once colliding with limits and imposing them. And what I find really interesting, um, I don't know if you remember like the diagram that Kent did for us um, a few, like two um, two sessions ago. Uh, and we could, we could do the same thing as the body without organ in the middle and then put... Um, the economy, like the um, political economy, on one side and psychoanalysis on the same time, on this on, on the other side, and see the 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 conjunction between you know both ways of doing, and you know coding or decoding or trying to liberate the flux or whatever else you know it's the same kind of processes, and I think that in that paragraph or in that section more generally. They're doing a real good job at like uh, linking those two domains together, and it would be a really interesting thing to do it with other domains. For example, behaviorist psychology now, or how it is like entrenched into like a different organization of capital, but also a different organization of uh, the subject. Because remember, this was written in the seventies, so you know we're 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 not there anymore. You know, it's like a it's a moment in time also. I agree. Or with uh, the big five, as that seems to be coming into more and more popularity as well. Last thoughts before I move on to the next paragraph. Marx summarizes the entire matter by saying that the subjective es abstract essence is discovered by capitalism only to be put in chains all over again, to be subjugated and alienated. No longer, it is true, in an exterior and independent element as objectify, but in an, the element itself subjective of private property. To quote, what was previously being external to oneself, man's externalization in the thing, has merely become the act of externalizing, the process of alienating, end quote. It is, in fact, the form of private property that conditions the conjunction of the decoded flows, which is to say their axiomatization in a system where the flows of the means of production, as the property of the capitalists, is directly related to the flow of so-called free labor, as the property of the workers, so that the state restrictions on the substance or the content of private property do not at all affect this form. 
It is also the form of private property that constitutes the center of the factitious re-territorializations of capitalism. And finally, it is this form that produces the images filling other terms. Capitalism indeed implies the collapse of the great objective determinate representations. For the benefit of, of, the benefit of production as the universal interior essence, but it does not thereby escape the world of representation. It merely performs a vast conversion of this world by attributing to it the new form of an infinite subjective representation. Just to read the uh, footnote that follows that last sentence, Michel Foucault shows that the so-called human sciences found their principle in production and were constituted on the collapse of representation, but that they immediately reestablish a new type of representation, an unconscious representation. See the order of things, reference note 14, pages 352 to 67. So I think we talked about this yesterday too with like the discovery of labor value and then this abstract essence doesn't lead to a collapsing of the system or anything like that, but it, instead it leads to kind of a reconfiguring of it. Mm -hmm. So that, that, you know, because now they're quoting Marx and Marx analysis, Marx is analyzing the classical era, you know, is saying, you know, labor was different from capital and there's a full collapse within the modern era and, and the industrialization of uh, the capital and uh, personal labor. So property is becoming something that is both on, on both sides. So like there's a confusion between the condition of alienation that was work and work in itself being the producer of a form of alienation. Yeah, I agree with that. In, in one way, it's like it reminds me of, I bring this up a little bit because I think it's helpful, but like being in construction, you're talking about how much labor you need um, to, to do a project, right? In no way, shape or form are the workers in that diagram, in that model you're building. And yet they kind of need to be at some point, don't they? Yes, but the, everything is calculated in units. So there's an economy of labor that is being taught prior to the actual labor by arms and legs and brains and exactly and they're on the outside of that they no longer you don't you no longer begin with the workers that are there you begin with that model you're building and then you kind of take it from there yeah um, i want to ask about uh they have the line in here um it is in fact the form of private property that conditions the conjunction of the decoded flows uh when they say the form here of private property are they talking about it basically being turned into that abstract subjective essence or is that something that seems to be something that changes significantly over time and that is what is conditioning the conjunction of decoded flows in time i'm trying to, to, to ask a different way uh, uh one of the significant aspects of Deleuze's overall philosophy is that of difference and change over time becoming. Uh, if we're talking here, the form of private property is almost like a variable of whatever form private property is taking at any given time in any given socius, that is conditioning the conjunction of the decoded flows. To, as he says, which is to say their axiomatization in a system where the flows of the means of production as the property of the capitalists is directly related to the flow of so-called free labor as the property of the workers. Uh, is he referring that as a specific element 
of what private property is when he wrote this, or is he saying that that's something that shifts over time? It's something that shifts over time, but you know, the, just the, the phrase that you skipped, what was previously being external to oneself, man externalization in the thing, because labor was put in the thing, has merely become the act of externalizing the process of alienating. So, so there's a shift. Before you move on, I want to make sure I understand, because I, I didn't quote that line because I don't fully grasp it. And so I'm going to try to say it in a way I think I understand it. Um, what was previously being external to oneself, man's externalization thing, uh, labor once upon a time was agrarian as an example. And so you would uh, basically have your labor defined in bushels of wheat. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes. And so your your labor would be, oh, I'm worth 30 bushels today, or my family's worth 60 bushels, or a bunch of apples, or whatever. And at some point, that stopped being a thing we could really tie to a person, and instead there's been now this abstracted concept of labor that once was external to oneself, but now uh, has merely become the act of externalizing, creating labor that is outside of you, and that by nature is alienation. Is that my is that a fair summation of what? That is saying. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Okay, cool. so that's that's the passage from the classical to the modern. Right, that's classic. That's good old fashioned Marx. Like that's from an old like that's good old fashioned Marx right there. Yes. Um, so when they're talking about the switch, then uh, they're talking about the form of private property, the conditions, the conjunction of decoded flows, which is to say their axiomizations. They're talking about this externalized process, this thing that it's become, the subjective essence at this point is as the property in quotes of the workers. So the state restrictions on the substance or the content of private property do not affect this form that finally the, there's private property in this that is moved so you know there's a difference in class and there's the difference in property when you know when they're saying that we must appropriate the means of production it's to establish a property you know over um the way we produce ourselves and now they're saying you know just a little bit after that the capitalists uh, the property of the capitalist is directly related to the flow of the so-called free labor as a property of the workers. So basically like the property of the capitalist is the alienation of the workers. So the actual thing the capitalist owns isn't even necessarily the labor of the workers, but their alienation. The condition. Of the yes. Okay, can you, can you guys um, speak to um, the change that occurs from going to where the harvest the amount of apples and the wheat and stuff like that gets, uh, I'm going to use the word axiomatized, but uh, maybe another word, uh, when they reduce it down to hours and wages. So can you entertain the basic understanding there, the Marxist understanding of that? That um, Okay, I'll give it a try. Um, does anyone else want to give it a try first, I guess? And Ogman, mute yourself real quick. I'll give it a shot. So with agrarian society, right, like this is kind of leading into like sort of pre-physiocratic economics, which is a, a simple way of saying before capitalism, yeah? So like with with agricultural production, um, production is a little bit more, it's a little bit less transcendental, right? So like when they're saying like this much labor yields this much wheat, that is pretty much where the, the buck ends in a sense. To go further is to look at trading and all that, or to be more specific, right? 
if we're talking about right before capitalism, we're talking about feudalism and feudalist economics, that stuff moves differently. There's no medium regulating everything through wealth. So like the Marxian point here is that what happens with the establishment of capital, i.e. money, is that you get, um, it's no longer that uh, like something like gold regulates things. It's actually that this thing called money um, sort of extrapolates from that. So this is one of the more brilliant, brilliant points of um, Das Capital, I think, is that with the establishment of money, you don't have gold underlying money. You have money sort of underwriting itself in relation to all the other commodities. It's very privileged in that manner. So it's a change in the equivalence, you know, because the money was equivalent to gold. And, you know, an object would be an equivalent to gold. There was an amount of gold for, you know, a bundle of wheat. But the, the way we change it into an abstraction of capital is you liberate um, the uh, you liberate the production from its equivalence. So basically it becomes relative and depending on how you invest on it or in it, uh, it can it can fluctuate in value. I just want to say, uh, I, I'm really hesitant to say that we should be talking about gold standard as a concept. I mean, Adam Smith actually really first drew the line between the abstraction of labor uh, inside of his work on fighting why the gold standard is garbage and that we need to get back to the point where labor is directly attached to product. Uh, the, and granted, that's been a while, but like the the gold standard itself is almost one step of that removal already. Yeah, my my the the problem with my explanation is because I'm too much of a Foucauldian, and I'm referring to uh, the order of things and how he actually explained that shift into the liberal era. No, but that's precisely it. All of a sudden, you have money sitting as itself, um, without anything tying it down, right? And that's that's kind of the Marxian point, is money itself was never tied down by gold. It's a it's sort of a fallacy. But I think Crooks is right that um, gold isn't uh, the thing that come was uh, that mattered before capitalism. Yeah, right. the way to the way to think about it is, um, and I would say it's easiest to go to the extremes, let's go 3000 years ago, people still had markets. I mean, you had markets in all kinds of places where you'd barter and trade and there was all ways of doing that. At some point, gold came along and gold is weird in the sense that yes, it has value and yes, you could trade it, but it became a currency. And so what happened is you began working not so much for bushels of apples that you could trade at the market, but instead bushels of apples you could sell for gold. And then at some point, gold stand as a standard and as a currency, money changed. And I actually, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that the gold standard and, and capital are necessarily two drastically different things because we're still talking about basically the total abstraction of what labor turns into. And that's the alienation where man is, I made a chair and that chair is great and that's my labor. But if I make a chair today, I make a chair that's worth $56 on Wish. And that's fucked up because that means that my labor is worth $56 in some weird, my labor's worth a chair. I made a chair. Wait, what? what's happening here? And that alienation is the thing they're talking about. So that's that's the switch that I, I as I understand it. 
No, you, you've got it. The, the Martian backdrop, though, is that you're talking about value form C, where gold is working and money has not yet arisen in value form D. That's that's the Marxian um, sort of turn of the screw here. Is, is You're absolutely correct. With, with labor and all these equivalencies in the world of commodities, as Marx calls it, you're right. Gold or some other commodity, and Marx is specific to some other commodity, can take that privileged um, universal equivalent um, with the backdrop of that exchange value relying on labor value and so forth. With value form D into the into capitalism, that's where you get the pre the precipitation of capital in and of itself. It's a very fine point for Marxian economics. <laughs> uh, it's a fine point for uh, capitalist economics too, because Adam Smith, I think, wholly agreed with that conceptually. And modern monetary, in my mind, uh, modern monetary theory, in my mind, demonstrates it. If you it demonstrates you don't need gold for money. Okay, so Algman's asking, uh, retyping the question, I'm going to say it aloud. How did the production of an amount of apples, let's say, if a worker worked for someone where they were paid for an amount, eventually led to production being a function of wage and time? Uh, so th this is this is the separation. Uh, that at some point in the past, uh, and feudalism is a, is a little bit different than this, but people basically got what they worked for, uh, and they literally did the thing that got them those that that labor. It was the way it laid out over time. As and whole, then the, and then the king would do uh, would take some of those resources. You know, yes. it would be like a form of taxation on on top. So basically, you were alienated by the king's. Uh, uh, I don't know how to say this in English, but like grabbing of some of your resources or some of your work. Yeah, essentially a tax systems in those times or tithing, however you want to phrase it. It's I'm giving this to the leader. I'm giving this to the, the son of God, however you want to put it. But you still got what you got. And there was like not saying it was great for labor back then. There's a lot of shittiness throughout history, but they were directly connected to the outcome. What happened is the switch over time of the idea of capital, where people could invest this abstract concept of labor and own an apple farm. Now, when I own an apple farm, I actually don't do any work. I don't do labor. My capital has done the labor, and you, my workers, who I pay in this form of capital, do labor for me. And you don't get everything. Uh, it's uh, the old Richard Wolf joke he tells is, how many of you are getting paid uh, what you're worth? And the answer is nobody. That's how capitalism works. Capitalism functions because everyone is getting paid less than they're worth because the capitalist is taking off everything off the top. Whereas once it was the despot taking directly from your apples or whatever you tithed, now the capitalist is taking money away from this abstracted version of labor on top of you not actually being connected to your labor at all. And that change happened mostly due to industrialization uh, and the big changes around Marx's time. And that's why he was able to see it very clearly during that. We've shifted into a, a much more fascinating time now where we are beyond fully abstracted. Uh, I'm not connected to my labor at all. The money I get, uh, I have no idea where it comes from, uh, genuinely. Uh, I, I'm not part of a productive force. I work in video games and entertainment. Uh, I don't make money. That's not how it works. Money is made in some other place that capitalists invest into what I do when I get paid out of that. So I'm in some really fucked up 
<laughs> like most of us are some real fucked up alienated world. Um, but that's that change over time has been basically the shift. And they're talking about that change over time as it's happened. Please, anyone uh, feel free to correct me. I think we can take this one step farther back, actually, because the the point where the Lord in feudalism takes your apples is actually already the first step to the abstraction, right? They make that point earlier, right? Before you have these kinds of taxation systems, um, you have the system where the serfs actually need to physically go to the fields of the Lord and work there. They actually have to provide their labor instead of their products um, as a tribute. And um, the the step towards producing a surplus that you can then give to your lord is already the first step into the abstraction of labor into uh, commodities. Yes, and prior to that, uh, if we go back to, they call it the savage, the first socius, uh, the, conceptually how that works is you are the chairmaker, and that's it. And people get chairs, and you kind of work in this weird communal savagery setup. You have feasts that blow off excess steam, uh, you, so you have some ways to deal with sort of uh, overcoating and things there. But the move for tithing is where you start having that sort of first step of alienation. So yes, it's that's right, Lou. Um, so it's, again, I don't know necessarily if I agree with their conception of the savage times, and I believe there's a little bit of uh, privileging of the primitive man and that, but I think overall that makes a lot more sense. Does that help at all, Ogman? Uh, yes, I'm making a comment now. So what, what I'm hearing is that the the economization over time was this this axiomatic, um, you know, uh, process or or gesture or education. I mean, there's all these interacting flows from the imperialist history and the feudal system uh, and the alienation of man to this axiomization of man, where he becomes an object to be counted. Yes, I, I think um, another way to put it would be uh, to sort of continue to make fun of Jack's uh, earlier comment that sounded like a stoner. Um, if you were to just say something simple like money as we as it works is not something that is real. Uh, it's something that we agree on the value of. And once upon a time, apples, Oh, apples are still apples. I mean, I, I, I know the value of an apple. They It feeds me. It gives me a little bit of nutrients. Shit like that hasn't changed. But we've added these multiple layers and axiomatizations that aren't real, that we've all agreed on. And those are the things that are sitting between us and and all of these uh, sort of at, at steps of reality that are part of my actual labor process. Nice work. If you If you want to lay it on the genealogy... So with production in the in the primitive machine, people are trading and working together for alliant reasons, right? And the despotic, they're dealing with overcoding where now things no longer come from the earth, but they come from the despot, right? And with that, you have to deal with financialization. That leads us toward the third machine, which is the capital machine, where the axiomatic, we're no longer dealing with simple overcoding, we're dealing with decoding and recoding from capital. Uh, and, and more especially from capital and the um, 
the interstice of the uh, the Erstat. And the, the point I'm also making with that is the, it's not that man is all of a sudden being counted, it's that man, the way man is counted is is changing constantly in these three. Mm -hmm. You know, just, just by making the, the categories of the capitalist and the worker, those are new categories. And, you know, and just by the way that we're thinking about the past, we're like, you know, reproducing uh, the current form into the past form. So you, you see like how, because we're not saying history from the beginning with the concepts at the beginning and then, you know, making them shift. We always do history in reverse. By doing history in reverse, you know, the, the concepts that we have now are always um, folded into the past. And that's, that's how capitalism functions as well, you know, because it takes its, its impulse on its own past. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? This is the mythic and tragic representations, uh, the artificial territorialities they're talking about. Uh, I'd like to mention something different which is this infinite subjective representation. Um, Adorno's, uh, yeah. first book, Adorno's first book was about uh, Kierkegaard. And, and, and basically, this is what he says, is that existentialism is this uh, infinite subjective representation. So we would find the same process in philosophy. Hmm. Yeah, Adorno, Adorno wrote these books against uh, Husserl, against Heidegger, um, and basically against existentialism from a Marxist uh, kind of position, and uh, and th this was this was the thing he was kind of trying to reveal that the that uh, existentialism is really a, a this kind of infinite subjective representation. Yes, but Marxism so, carries with so, it a very so, similar so. problem. So basically, they're putting the unconscious into the existence. Uh, that's right. It's, it's very interesting that uh, both Sartre and Heidegger uh, did not recognize the unconscious. And basically, they said that there was this uh, original choice that you didn't even know that you made. And you really, uh, uh, psychoanalysis should be about trying to uncover what that original cho existential choice you made. Oh. I'm just going to note that when we talk about existentialism in terms of um, who Adorno and Heidegger and Sartre talk about, we probably talk about very different conceptions of what existentialism actually is. Because that term in the 50s and earlier meant all kind of things in different contexts. It was a catch-all catch for like a lot of different shit and it's almost meaningless actually. And specifically between Germany and France there were large differences like Heidegger did not like what Sartre did with his work and um, I think Adorno has a completely different um, understanding of his existentialism is from both of them. But but if we talk about axioms, for example, and we, we said yesterday that, you know, it's the, the thing that cannot be proven right or wrong. It's to actually, like, say that, uh, for example, have a theory of labor or a theory of capital versus a theory of the unconscious or a theory of existence. 
it's just like three set of axioms that are part of the same diagram, kind of. Am I wrong with it? No, you're kind of on the mark. Foucault makes a very incisive critique here by pointing out that existentialism and Marxism have this fundamental weakness nearly in common, um, with the, the spin being that Marx appeals to the real man, the disagulated man, the man who's always sort of transcendent from what's going on, right? So the real man is never here. The real man is always somewhere else in the discourse. Isn't that somewhat of a psychoanalytic turn? The idea that, uh, you know, that the, the, the subject or the man is somewhere else than what he actually has to be dealing with? Yes, actually. And I, I'm going to, I thought I'm going to read the next sentence and continue to the next paragraph. Uh, make sure to keep a pin in that thought because it, it is basically where they're going. Uh, we seem to be straying from the main concern of psychoanalysis, yet never have we been so close. For here again, as we have seen previously, it is in the interiority of its movement that capitalism requires and institutes not only a social axiomatic, but an application of this axiomatic to the privatized family. Representation would never be able to ensure its own conversion without this application that furrows deep into it, cleaves it, and forces it back upon itself. Thus, subjective abstract labor, as represented in private property, has, as its correlate, subjective abstract desire as represented in the privatized family. Psychoanalysis undertakes the analysis of this second term as political economy analyzes the first. Psychoanalysis is the technique of application for which the political economy is the axiomatic. In a word, psychoanalysis disengages the second pole in the very movement of capitalism, which substitutes the infinite subjective representation for the large determinate objective representations. It is in fact essential that the limit of the decoded flows of desiring production be doubly exercised, doubly displaced, once by the position of imminent limits that capitalism does not cease to reproduce on an ever-expanding scale, and again by the marking out of an interior limit that reduces this social reproduction to restricted familial reproduction. Yeah, it's uh, one of the things Holland goes over quite a bit. I'm going to read a little bit um, uh, from uh, page 94 of uh, Holland's Guide to Anti-Oedipus. Uh, Deleuze and Guattari's notion of universal history is quite specific, based in part on Marx's comments in Grundrisse, where he insists that world history has not always existed as world history is a result. Like schizophrenia and the body without organs, according to Deleuze and Guattari, universal, or what Marx would call world, history arises only at the end of history. And here's the important part. As capitalism reveals the common essence of desire and labor, and then becomes capable of auto-critiquing regarding the ways it nevertheless continues to re-alienate that essence through capital and Oedipus, Yet the common essence is itself not fixed or determinate. Desiring production free from alienating forms of social production, schizophrenia free from paranoia, market dynamics free from power, is the motor of permanent revolution, a movement of perpetual transformation and differentiation. Uh, and I think this is the first paragraph where they're starting to really get at this point. Uh, 
that the the political and the separation between the political and the psychoanalytic, the social machines and desiring machines, uh, if you want to say, um, they're actually one and the same. And through the sort of explosion of capital, we're able to see that a lot more clearly. Yeah, psychoanalysis is a technology of political economy. Yes, oh, I like that. Yes. And, and quotable. Yeah, please type that so we can uh, type that shit out, Jack, so we can start it, because uh, that should be set up. Um, it's a very general statement, though. It, it is, but it's, it's specifically around the lines here. Um, the, the reality is that capital, uh, we feel, operates kind of uh, in its own place, but the, the psychoanalytic side of things with the nuclear family and the push towards the Oedipal is basically reinforcing that machine. And they are ultimately one and the same. Again, to talk through the molar and molecular, however you want to do it, the two poles of these things, the uh, paranoid and the schizo, um, that they are ultimately part of the same sort of uh, operation. Is how, how I read them. So, like, if we if we put it into a common, oh, I'm just okay. I, I it echoes so much I cannot talk. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, to put it into a common diagram, uh, or you know, within capitalism, we can say psychoanalysis is a technology of political economy, uh, but also uh, labor would be a technology of political economy. Like a anything, any domain would be a technology of political economy seen, in, seen into that manner. And they all answer to the same axioms. I think it would be worth actually, unless there's very specific questions on this paragraph, they actually go into a pretty decent explanation in the next one. So uh, I'll, I'll wait for Ogman to finish typing, see if there's something there, uh, and then I'll continue reading the next paragraph because they're about to go into deep into how psychoanalysis works within representations and subjectivity. Just want to comment too, that I really like how they're talking about representation is cleaving itself, um, sort of like forcing itself back upon itself, like this way representation between the psychoanalytic and the political economy is sort of that, is sort of like self mutilating, but in the same way, um, doubly reinforcing, even though it's crippling itself at the same time. Like it's, it's a really interesting image, but also kind of, it, it seems like they got their finger on the mark here. And the, the question Augment asks, and it's actually a great one, is it molecular, molar, or both when psychotherapy becomes institutional and part of the mental health industry? Uh, I would love to get everyone's take on this. I'm going to give uh, mine, which is uh, basically you have... Uh, this abstract uh, labor that exists inside of the social fields, that would be the molar, and the uh, molecular is my unconscious. Uh, capital utilizes political power to basically handle the social fields and create axiomatics there. And in concert with this, psychoanalysis is doing the same thing inside of my, my unconscious with my desiring machines. And that's how they operate together. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a phone call, but I'll call later. Um, yeah, uh, so what I just wrote is that psychotherapy would be a technology of um, 
political economy or power and the molar would be you know what we call, call the same the same mind <clears throat> i don't really know how psychotherapy is like using its categories but the infinite differences would be the molecular so the 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 diff, the the the, the, mo, the the as a technology psychotherapy would try to articulate um the differences to the molar to stop it becoming and format it into uh, uh, the major category because it serves capital. You know, it's the whole economy that is being reproduced into that field. So the reason I mentioned psychotherapy is because, uh, yeah, so psychotherapy deterritorialized or re-territorialized, I'm not sure which one is the correct descriptor um, of the history of psychoanalysis or psychoanalysis. And so you have all these modalities, which I guess uh, would be referred to as the molecular. And um, yeah, it just brings into question that, um, that these technologies all end up failing um, because of their, uh, you know, because of their economic uh, vectorization or what, what, how they're basically corroborated under capital. Mm -hmm. As it forces like a form of adaptation, it's a technology of adaptation. So you can actually meet um, the molar aspect of capitalism. So basically like the, you're being reproduced, you're being produced and reproduced to actually fit what's demanded by the diagram. You're being made into the triangle that is Oedipus. Despite your flows and desires being far beyond that, you're being cookie cuttered out uh, through that process, and that process shapes you very well for uh, effectively what is the abstraction of labor that capital demands. Mm -hmm. And we're having the same kind of um, it's an emergent criticism within disability studies uh, for like more physical disabilities and stuff like how. Um, our physical therapy is actually because physical therapy emerged into uh, the moment after the war because it would recondition um, the soldier to make them apt to uh, join the workforce. So for disabled people, uh, the whole industry of the physical therapy would be to fix the bodies, but also fix the mind to integrate them into uh the dominant mode of production of society. So basically they want to get you back to work. So even though, you know, there's like parallel or subsequent advantages, you know, you can do like leisure or whatever else, but all of those domains are all integrated into work because they depend on work to function. So uh, psychotherapy, you know, mental health, uh, counseling, whatever else, would actually function not to destroy society and you know recreate, re-offer re, uh, re the possibilities of self-definition to man, but it works on the opposite. It actually alienate you into the system. Yeah, and there you go, right? Physical therapy is a technology of political economy. It's the same idea. Exactly, yes. But it seems good, you know, on a moral stance, you, you, you're like, but why not? But that's the thing that the why not is that we have no choice anymore. Capitalism makes it that way. This whole political economy of the moment makes it that we don't understand the possibilities of doing otherwise.
You know, how do we create a society that considers bodily differences and, you know, that, that accept bodily differences, not in regard to capital and not in regard to production? Why is disability something that is frowned upon? It's because you are not as fast, you're not as competent, you're not as good in the you workplace. Can't, you can't produce. Your labor is not exactly. equivalent to mine. Yeah. Even though it, oh, it, it very well may be. Like it's the hilarious part is the vast majority of people who have some level of disability can do a lot of the menial labor jobs that completely able-bodied people can do, but they're still seen as being uh, contributing less labor to the overall uh, abstract nightmare. The whole thing's nightmarish. Like it's it's absurd, but it is it's it's what they're talking about. Uh, I, I do want to continue moving on so we can get through this next paragraph. Um, Consequently, the ambiguity of psychoanalysis in relation to myth or tragedy has the following explanation. Psychoanalysis undoes them as objective representations and discovers in them the figures of subjective universal libido, but it reanimates them and promotes them as subjective representations that extend the mythic and tragic contents to infinity. Psychoanalysis does treat myth and tragedy but it treats them as the dreams and the fantasies of private man, homo familia. And in fact, dream and fantasy are to myth and tragedy as private property is to public property. Oh, I'm gonna reread that, I like that. In fact, dream and fantasy are to myth and tragedy as private property is to public property. What acts in myth and tragedy at the level of objective elements is therefore reappropriated and raised to a higher level by psychoanalysis, but as an unconscious dimension of subjective representation, myth as humanity's dream. What acts as an objective and public element, the earth, the despot, is now taken up again, but as the expression of a subjective and private re-territorialization. Oedipus is the fallen despot, banished, deterritorialized, but a re-territorialization is engineered, using the Oedipus complex conceived of as the daddy-mommy-me of today's everyman. Psychoanalysis and the Oedipus complex gather up all beliefs, all that has ever been believed by humanity, but only in order to raise it to the condition of a denial that preserves belief without believing in it. It's only a dream. The strictest piety today asks for nothing more. Whence this double impression that psychoanalysis is opposed to mythology, no less than to mythologists, but at the same time extends myth and tragedy to the dimensions of the subjective universal. If Oedipus himself has no complex, the Oedipus complex has no Oedipus, just as narcissism has no narcissus. Uh, to read the footnote as I go. Narcissus. Freud great Narcissus. No. Not in the, not in mine. Okay. In um, French, it's different. Sorry. I'm I'm sure it is. It's silly, silly language. Um, Freud grants myth no specificity. This is one of the points that have most seriously encumbered the subsequent relations between psychoanalysts and anthropologists. Freud undertakes a veritable leveling. The article on narcissism and introduction, which constitutes an important step towards the revision of the theory of the drives, contains no allusion to the myth of narcissus or narcissus, uh, whatever it is. Um, 
such as the ambivalence that traverses psychoanalysis and that extends beyond the specific problem of myth and tragedy. With one hand, psychoanalysis undoes the system of objective representations, myth-tragedy, for the benefit of the subjective essence conceived as desiring production. While on the other hand, it reverses this production in a system of subjective representations. Dream and fantasy with myth and tragedy posited as their developments or projections. Images, nothing but images. What is left in the end is an intimate familial theater, the theater of private man, which is no longer either desiring production or objective representation. The unconscious as a stage, a whole theater put in the place of production, a theater that disfigures this production even more than could tragedy and myth when reduced to their meager ancient resources. So yesterday someone asked a question, I think it was Alkman, um, and I can't repeat the question, but I think that's the answer, right? <laughs> You're talking about the question about myths? Um, it was very early. Uh, it was one of the questions. It was a question like, um, yeah, the myths and the archetypes. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe you should just um, repeat what you were thinking yesterday. <laughs> well, I was thinking a number of things at different points in time, but I, I think this uh, last reading did speak to the idea of the the imagos and the archetypes that get upheld by capitalism and, uh, you know, and, and yeah, it does speak to that. I think I totally agree. Say, what's, what's interesting okay. here is the complete integration of the, the subjective or the private man into the machine. So like, you know, when, when they say like, what is left, I'm going to say something, Instagram, for example, let's say Instagram and then read that. What is left in the end is the, an intimate familial theater, the theater of the private man, which is no longer either desiring production or objective representation. The unconscious as a stage, a whole theater put in the place of production, a theater that disfigures this production even more that could tragedy admit when reduced to their meager ancient resources. So like we're, it's it's the whole society of the spectacle also that everything is blurred together everything is connected you know yesterday we talked about the matrix that the same thing you're completely tapped into the system so your whole private life is being produced in a, a moment and a place of production at the same time so instagram becomes that your private life is how you produce the world. So we're producing a full consumerist, you know, desiring world from the way we represent ourselves. And the representation itself becomes a product, but a mean of production. Yeah, and this is really important in line with like civilizations, discontents, right? Because, right, so they brought up the Oedipus complex more directly by name here, right? One of Freud's main arguments and one of his more interesting works is where he takes the Oedipus complex into the world, right? So no longer do you have the familialism of um, mommy, daddy, me in the cozy house. You have the familialism um, of the social, which is me, the institution as daddy. And I, I can't quite remember what mommy is right now, but um, I suppose it's kind of the point, yeah? And, and to Roger's point, this is the this is that level of production where the, the familialism... Um, precipitates outward into the social. In fact, it doesn't even necessarily, it, it, it is at one and the same time, the social. So like this is getting into like what, what they're talking about with the, the dream projection, the fantasy projection onto the, 
outward in the world where the, the Oedipus itself, narcissist itself, is doesn't need to be there because these complices do the job. So for me, one of the questions, and I have, a, I have a, a lot of questions as we get through this, especially for people who are probably more versed in psychoanalytic theory than me. Um, one of the things they talk about here at the end there is uh, if Oedipus himself has no complex, Oedipus complex has no Oedipus, and narcissism has no narcissus. Uh, they then go on to say the tra- uh, extends beyond specific problem, myth, and tragedy. On the one hand, psychoanalysis undoes the system of objective representations, myth, and tragedy for the benefit of the subjective essence conceived as desiring production uh, is is the reference here essentially that uh, they're taking away uh, I, I think you could argue that in the myth of narcissus um, or the myth of Oedipus the actual stories there is significant uh, how to put it uh, subtleties interesting parts side parts of the story all kinds of little aspects of it that aren't necessarily the direct Oedipal uh, structure that Freud created or that narcissist that narcissism is so is this saying that you're removing the myth from the the underlying reality of it or like what are they trying to say there right so I think you guys are aware of this uh, maybe I'm just reiterating or recapitulating it, but it sounds like they are deinvesting or they're taking out, out the investment of the myth and trying to find, right? So they're taking out the schism there of Oedipus and, uh, and trying to articulate the flow. Into capital. Yeah, I think you're right on this. And uh, funny thing, I've been invited into a psychology class of a university. It's a well, it's a PhD seminar, and we actually read uh, the Oedipus. Uh, and you know, they're they're like all psychoanalysis and stuff. When we actually read Oedipus, and the myth has nothing to do with the well, not nothing to do, but like it's mommy, daddy, and uh, and the despot, but. Um, it, it, it does not play in the same way that uh, Freud puts it, you know, it's like he's completely unconscious that he actually already killed his father, he ended up marrying his mother, but he also is the embodiment of the law and he wants to pursue, you know, justice and stuff and find the person who actually killed his, his father and everybody knows that he did it and in the end he finds out, you know, his mother suicides herself and, and it's, it's a different story, but the myth to be integrated into the diagram has been transformed by psychoanalysis to fit the diagram or fit, you know, the, the dominant axiom. Well, it's transformed uh, in a way to emphasize uh, that it's happening to the subject, the personalization of it. So there's, there's a removal from the ability to perceive uh, the flows that go unsaid and I think, and just to add to that and i think that again the promise of psychoanalysis is that it will uh in fact put that in perspective or put that mirror up or will show uh the various flows um that are at cause that are part of the causation that don't get spoken but i think it fails in doing that yeah, I think what we're moving into is this is a more methodological, or at least a more explicit methodological critique. So to give an example outside of Oedipus, right, the Pygmalion um, effect or whatever, where like men, rich, rich men 
usually it's men. Uh, rich men will find women on the street. If you guys have ever seen Pretty Woman, this is pretty much where I'm going. We'll find women on the street who like um, are at the slums of life. And these men will like pay for their college and they'll try to make them into some ideal that they're presently not. Right. The Pygmalion effect is a way of explaining this. And in that way, it's part of a methodology of, um, I think that is more like cognitive behavioral um, theory, but because I don't, I don't think this is directly, I don't know if psychoanalysis has the, the patent on this, but it's, it seems to me that that's what we're getting at here is the methodology of using these stories, of using these plays, doing a turn of the screw on them, and then transplanting reality into a projection of that um, of that reinterpreted story is effectively what they're getting at here in terms of the critique, that very methodology more directly. I think uh, that pause tends to mean that I'm going to be able to move on to the next paragraph. Words for me. All right. I believe uh, we're at myth, tragedy, dream, and fantasy. Is that right? Yes, sir. I was moving around quite a bit. This is a... Uh... This is where we start getting into, I think, some of the more really interesting aspects of where people have taken a lot of Deleuze's thoughts. Um, Lazzarato, as an example, I'm starting to see a lot more of the, the creation of the subject inside of capitalism and how signs operate there. It's fast. This is this is awesome, but my brain is slowly dying. <sighs> Myth, tragedy, dream, and fantasy. And myth and tragedy reinterpreted in dreams in terms of dream and fantasy are the representative series that psychoanalysis substitutes for the line of production, social and desiring production, a theater series instead of a production series. But why, in fact, does representation, having become subjective representation, assume this theatrical form? There is a mysterious tie between psychoanalysis and the theater. We are familiar with the eminently modern reply of certain recent authors. The theater elicits the finite structure of the infinite subjective representation. What is meant by elicit is very complex, since the structure can never present more than its own absence, or represent something not represented in the representation. But it is claimed that the theater's privilege is that of staging this metaphoric and metonymic causality that marks both the presence and the absence of the structures in its effects. While Andre Green expresses the absent, well, Andre Green expresses reservations about the adequacy of the structure, he does so only in the name of a theater necessary for the actualization of the structure, playing the role of the revealer, a place by which the structure becomes visible. In her fine analysis of the phenomenon of belief, Octave Minoni likewise uses the theater model to show how the denial of belief in fact implies a transformation of belief under the effect of a structure that the theater embodies or places on stage. We should understand that representation, when it ceases to be objective, when it becomes subjective infinite, that is to say imaginary, effectively loses all consistency, unless it is supported by a structure that determines the place and the functions of the subject of representation, as well as the objects represented as images and the formal relations between them all. Symbolic thus no longer designates the relation of representation to an objectity. Uh, I'm sure that that's a fuck up in my text. What is, does anyone else have a different word? They're objective. 
No nope. fucking nope. word. That that's correct. It's terrible. What does that what does that mean? Uh, to an objectity as an element. It designates the ultimate elements of subjective representation. Pure signifiers, pure non-represented representatives, whence the subjects, the objects, and their relationships all derive. In this way, the structure designates the unconscious of subjective representation. The series of this representation now presents itself. Imaginary, infinite, subjective representation, theatrical representation, structural representation. Oh, Jesus Christ. I'm not going to say that again. And precisely because the theater is thought to stage the latent structure, as well as to embody its elements and relations, it is in a position to reveal the universality of the structure, even in the objective representations that it salvages interprets in terms of hidden representatives, their migrations and variable relations. All former beliefs are gathered up and revived in the name of a structure of the unconscious. We are still pious. Everywhere the great game of the symbolic signifier that is embedded in the sense of the imaginary, Oedipus as a universal metaphor. I feel like I read half of that wrong, but I don't know where. Um, I would love someone if, I mean, I've got so many things to go over this. Um, what is objectity in this situation? I saw people making comments. Symbolic thus no longer designates the relation of representation to an objectity as an element. Please, someone explain that. I think it's just an aspect use of, of object or objectivity, you know, that comes with the the neologism of uh, constructive, the constructive aspect of this type of flow and narration. So it's just, you know, in a set of synonymous meanings with like object and objectivity. So I haven't found the French yet, but the German translation suggests that um, it's just objectivity, like that it's actually a typo. Uh, it's not a typo. This came up before, uh, and uh, you know it was looked up, and it means that the uh, refers to the thing in itself giving rise to appearances. It, it that word came up before, and we discussed it, and I looked it up and put it in the uh, chat. It's the the definition I found was that it's it's when the thing in itself gives rise to appearances. Oh, so, okay. so yeah, this um, in phenomenology, there's a difference between the thing and the object. The thing is something that is not part of perception, but the object is, you know, is is the thing divided into as the thing in itself with, you know, is 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 phenomenon, you know, how it appears. So like it can be objectified as something that is definable. Am I right, uh, Kent? Uh, yeah, that's what I understand. Uh, you know, I mean, we could try to look it up again. I'd never heard of it before. I, I, let's go with, I actually like the idea of okay. it being a... Okay, I'm just, okay just, just one thing that I can say. In French, it's uh, objectivity, which would be like identities. So it would be like a, like a play on, on word. It's um, a neologism. It's a neologism about objects as identities not represent identities would be the representation of uh, a thing or a person, you know, but it's not the person. 
uh, that would be the same thing as objectivity would be the identity of object, uh, identity of things, if we want. Not the order of things. So I just wanted to clarify. They actually talk about it earlier. Yes, on page three hundred one. Um, so I'll try to find. I'll try to find if you know, like. Roger, you you posted something about a German word, but the word you posted is not a German word. Like, is that a typo or something? Uh, no, yes, it's a typo, and because it's uh, it's my uh, Adobe that is not making a good job. Is objectitat a with uh, trema on it? I don't know what trema is in English. Yeah, okay, but it's it. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that sounds more like a German word, but it's not less technical and not more understandable, I think. Does not help. I love that. I'm, I'm going to go with neologism. And I'm going to say that... Interestingly, like the German translation uses their actually Gegenständlichkeit, which I guess translates like Objektität can be seen as basically synonymous to that but usually you would also just translate it with objectivity i think is it just the treatment of the thing in itself's thing as object is it sort of is that kind of what they're getting at i i think it's objectivity in the same way it's blueness uh, the same way it's objectiveness it's it's representation to it's it's objectivity as an element uh, to continue that. Oh, sentence. I found something. Like there's an historical German dictionary that says that Objektität is a Begriff von Schopenhauer. Uh, Objektität is a concept by Schopenhauer. So there's a thing there. So Objektität would be the alienation of the thing as an exterior and an independent object to itself. Wouldn't it be... Would it be the alienation of the thing or the thing in itself? Of the thing. Why the thing and not the thing in the, itself? I mean, I think we, we're still going into like this old idea that we don't have access to the thing in itself. So it's it's the thing. It doesn't matter. We're hung up now on this weird thing. I, the overall point of the sentence, let's try to get to that. Uh, they're talking about how symbolic has shifted. It no longer designates the relation of representation to word as an element. It designates the ultimate elements of subjective representation, pure signifiers, pure non-representative representatives whence the subjects, objects, and their relationships all derive. What does that mean? I don't give a shit about objectivity. I should never have brought up that stupid word. I want to know what that <laughs> is. I'm sorry, I was distracted. Could you, which sentence are you focusing on? The one that the word that will not be named is uh, in. Uh, it designates the ultimate elements of subjective representation, pure signifiers, pure non-represented representatives, whence the subjects, objects, and their relationships all derive. Symbolic no longer designates the relation of representation to an objective element. What the fuck does that mean? That's it. That's what I want to know. Symbolic has changed its meaning. How? What did it mean before? They do not really super get into it. They talk about this sort of change as 
these uh, things that are ultimately now pushing things towards capital. I get that from the previous setups. They're talking about the theater, uh, which is feels like they're once again going back to the idea of uh, how the the medium. In, in the message matters and how the medium is shifting and how the medium is changing. A myth, yeah. tragedy, dream, and fantasy are representative series that psychoanalysis okay. substitutes. Okay, so like you can have vertical. Let's put it into like I'm gonna say axioms. Like not don't 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 confuse it with axiomatics, but like let's say two axioms. Uh, we have like the the vertical axioms that the symbolic would refer to the material, and then what they're saying is that it doesn't work like that. It becomes like an horizontal. Um, axiom where you know the representations are relating to other representation so it becomes a pure abstract instead of something related to the real tangible or material world so we talk about categories instead of talking about things oh it's that symbolic no longer represents uh to be very specific they're talking about labor but it applies across the board i would think um uh labor, uh, my ability to deal with symbolic aspect of my labor, I have 20 apples, and that actually turns into a chair at some point, or my labor turns into 20 apples, that apples, that's the symbolic element of my labor is symbolic. However, now, because we're dealing with abstracts of abstracts, and dealing with abstracts of other abstracts, uh, symbolic no longer is about the representation of these objective elements as objective elements. Instead, they are ultimate elements of subjective representation, pure signifiers that have no bounds and no attachment to anything within the concrete plane of how the machinic or material world actually works. Mm -hmm. So everything is alienated by for, from itself. All former beliefs are gathered up and revived in the name of a structure of the unconscious. We are still pious. Everywhere the great game of the symbolic signifier that is embodied in the signifieds of the imaginary, Oedipus as the universal metaphor. What does that mean? The great game of the symbolic signifier that is embedded in the signifieds of the imaginary? Is it saying uh, one of the things that has happened is myths now no longer even have the original myth inside of them. Instead, we've basically uh, broken down the structures of these things so they fit the uh, technical machine, ultimately, that is Oedipus and psychoanalysis. Uh, as an example, they brought up Freud's narcissism. I'm not super familiar with Freud, but I'm familiar enough that basically everything Freud did, he tied back into Oedipus, and he tied back into sort of, uh, I would say, very stretching the reality of truth, but he did everything he can to make these technical machines fit the way Oedipus operated and the way Oedipus worked within psychoanalysis. Uh, Lacan, Everything Lacan did, which was deeply revolutionary and really interesting shit, kind of ultimately still comes back to this same thing where it's Oedipus as this universal metaphor and it's everything is shaped to that. So the great game of the symbolic signifier, the 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 great sig the master signifier that is embodied in the signifies of the imaginary, ultimately comes back to being shaped by Oedipus, this technical machine that builds all these other technical. Yeah, and I think something we, you know, something that has been lost into that paragraph is the move from the symbolic to the imaginary, and it's a it's a tectonic shift it into representation. So the so sim sim symbolic, you know, is a symbol of a thing, but the imaginary is a relation between symbols or the, you know, or between representations. So representation themselves would be uh, signified.
Yeah, it looks like Oedipus becomes the thing connecting the signifier and the signified here. But only in a, only in the imaginary. Because it deals with the unconscious, you know, categories of the unconscious and not like real behaviors. Yeah, I mean, I see it as a remark on the structure because the sentence that helps me here is, in this way, the structure designates the unconscious of subjective representation. So that subjective representation is the, the link between the structure and that subjective representation in this manner appears to be Oedipus. You know, I, I'd like to mention something here, which is that <clears throat> what this reminds me of is uh, uh, Kassira, volume three of his uh, philosophy of symbolic forms, where he says that the set theory um, becomes used as a filter so that you can handle infinite uh, objects and which cannot be represented finitely. <clears throat> and this shift that they're talking about here uh, kind of reminds me of that. That becomes a big deal in the, uh, uh, the last part of uh, Difference and Repetition. Any other last comments on this paragraph? Okay, before we go there, I'll just share some radical thoughts. I mean, these are raw, you know, I need to work through this, but as as we're going through this section and your guys' comments, I think that there is a kind of serialization that happens in the symbolic um, that then moves into what happens is the, uh, the Oedipal assemblage comes into play once the symbolic moves into more of a graph structure. So when there is relations between the the ranking and the signs and signified that are no longer linear or strictly hierarchical, Oedipus comes into play to try to reestablish some sort of um, hierarchical designation. Um, and so we're dealing with basically uh, Again, I need to work through this a little bit further, but the idea of the unconscious machine or the spaces in between the unconscious machine, the kind of dark spaces or the shadow um, that that is formed by this edipalization um, or this, you know, using the imaginary to try to, um, you know, that comes about as a part of the edipal in order to establish, in order to try to contain the fact that this thing is free-flowing and more graph-like in structure? I think yes. I, I, I also have a lot of very raw thoughts on this, as I've uh, only been reading this for the last few days, and I'm still processing a lot as we read it. But I think, generally speaking, that's my understanding of it as well. Um, I would add in that uh, text very, very heavily is that the intention of psychoanalysis is to place the sort of Oedipal framing or cookie cutter Oedipalization of your desires. They're trying to place that uh, very, very, very early in what we would call the machinic process of the unconscious, uh, trying to shape everything into that. So that way, as your desires appear, you believe Oedipus comes first. Uh, it's the they talk earlier, even in this uh, this very section, where uh, the the 
One of the things Oedipus does is it actually presumes that the child is the one who instills Oedipal fear in the father, um, and that the child is the one who visits this into the father, which is very true. That's kind of the nature of Oedipus, that uh, a father, uh, through fear of his son usurping this position and wanting to fuck his wife, uh, places laws around him and places rules and teaches him the very thing uh, Dan sort of has this implanted upon him, visited by the sins of the child, which is asinine. Uh, I mean, I believe it's asinine. Um, and so the, the earlier they can place this, the earlier they can axiomatize Oedipus, the better. I, I think that's the, the thing I would add in, that they're trying to basically place this almost ideology of Oedipus super early in the desire and libido sort of development process. Is that making sense? Yes, because it's an organizing machine. So, like, if you organize the root of, you know, the source of the the the, the river or whatever else, you're gonna construct the river as you go. So, to put the Oedipus there is allowing a reconstruction. So it's always this this coding or decoding of flows, and you know, by by decoding, you can actually work with them. You know, it's not the raw thing. Like I said. Like I said, when we we were going over this a few sections ago, uh, to the man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. We know that saying. And to the the man who's been edipalized, every woman looks like his mother, and every lawman looks like his father. It's kind of yes. the idea. Yes, and then it but it puts everything within the imaginary without without any necessary link to reality. Yes, and that's uh, Algman typed exactly what I was saying, I think, at the same time. Spot on. Um, to quote him, it's a case of the metonymic, metonymic displacements, like when a boss reminds of the father, a power flow, then an association of the subject with the woman, and lack, and so on and so forth. Yes, it's uh, completely that. So it's Ammer Daddy and Ammer Mommy, but in the different sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, to continue reading. Why the theater? How bizarre this theatrical and pasteboard unconscious, the theater taken as the model of production. Even in Louis Althusser, we are witness to the following operation. The discovery of social production as machine or machinery, irreducible to the world of objective representation. Not going to try to pronounce German words. But immediately, the reduction of the machine to structure, the identification of production with the structural and theatrical representation. Now the same is true of both desiring production and social production. Every time that production, rather than being apprehended in its originality, in its reality becomes reduced in this manner to a representational space. It can no longer have value except by its own absence, and it appears as a lack within this space. In search of the structure in psychoanalysis, Mustafa Salfan is able to present it as a contribution to a theory of lack. It is in the structure that the fusion of desire with the impossible is performed, with lack defined as castration. From the structure, there arises the most austere song in honor of castration. Yes, yes, we enter the order of desire through the gates of castration. Once desiring production is spread out in the space of representation that allows it to go on living only as an absence and a lack unto itself. For a structural unity is imposed on the desiring machines that joins them together in a molar aggregate. The partial objects are referred to a totality that can appear only as that which the partial objects lack. And as that which is lacking unto itself, well, lacking in them, the great signifiers symbolizable by an inherency of A minus 1 in the ensemble of signifiers. 
Just how far will one go in the development of a lack of lack traversing the structure? Such is the structural operation. It distributes lack in the molar aggregate. The limit of desiring production, the borderline separating the molar aggregate and their molecular elements. The objective representations in the machines of desire is now completely displaced. The limit now passes only within the molar aggregate itself, inasmuch as the latter is furrowed by the line of castration. The formal operations of the structure are those of extrapolation, application, and biunivocalization, which reduce the social aggregate of departure to a familial aggregate of destination, with the familial relation becoming metaphorical for all the others and hindering the molecular productive elements from following their own line of escape. Just got to say, I really love that line, the reduction of the machine to the structure. Yes, because it, by doing so, it naturalizes you know, the thing into the structure and not see it as a process. It's not something that is being produced, but something that is already there and already um, naturalized. It's part of it's part of nature and the real. But everything comes too quick, you know, like I, if I had more time, I would have taken the text that Deleuze did on structuralism and tried to link this passage and try to understand, like, what is he criticizing? Because he's, he's, he's criticizing not just the structure, but also, like, the form of thinking that, you know, presupposes uh, structures. So I would, I would like to see that link, but I cannot make that link right now. Yeah, but I think you're, I think you pretty much nailed it, right? It's uh, taking the production, the machinic ontology, right? And then taking that and reducing it to a structural ontology. Right, and in that way, you sort of um, you you kind of evaporate the former. Yeah, there you go, Brutz. You make the mistake of saying the machine is its structure. I wonder if they're almost. I feel like they're wanting to flip it around, where they're saying, like, look, the machine is the structure, not quite, but instead, you should be looking at the way that the structure is built and realize that's actually the that's actually building machines. Like, there's a there's a nature to sort of that being reversed that feels intuitively interesting to their discussion here yeah that's something that has always been like puzzling to me with Deleuze it's like uh, I always at one point when I discuss the process of production I will say dialectics and they don't really use that term and you know it's from more like a Hegelian kind of thinking but there's a there's like an autopoiesis of, of uh, the structure in the machine. So like the the structure is being, that's something that I, I'm saying in my dissertation as well, that the, the structure is being produced, but also is producing. So it, there's like a double movement there. So, uh, but to, to, there's a certain quote, mode of thinking. I think that's what happens with the lack in the Oedipole. They're reiterating that in the last paragraph. I think the line that I really like for that is, such is the structural operation. It distributes lack in the molar aggregate. The nature of the structure distributes this lack. And immediately through that, there's kind of, because, because our machines don't stop, like the molar is just a shitload more machines that we're looking at through a larger lens. Uh, by distributing lack at that point, it immediately sort of has this recursive effect down the line. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think of them as reflexive, kind of like Roger's saying, where it's not necessarily that structure is the, the, the point of origin or that um, the, the machining is the point of origin, but that the two are simultaneously acting and reacting on one another. But in the ideology, it points itself as the point of departure. 
precisely. And I think that's the mistake they're pointing out here is when you you try to, and this is kind of a bionivicalization, isn't it? When you make one into the other and you kind of flatten it or sort of um, crumple it like two pieces of paper into one ball. So that's what they're saying, like in entering the molecular productive element from following their own line of escape. So basically it's a reintegration of becomings and, you know, possibilities of like changing position or transformation within a structure that is pre-established. Yeah, completely agree. And I think that's why they're using the theater here as their point of departure to explain it. Because in that way, right, like the ideology is like a stage and you've just kind of got to cast things on that stage. And that stage for psychoanalysis would be the imaginary. And for capitalism would be capital or the market or whatever else. What a grim image, the Oedipal market. (laughs) (laughs) Do we still have a Brooks? We do. I'm reading through some of Andre Green's papers that came out actually after this about the theater and Oedipus specifically. Um, How the Oedipus Effects works in tragedy is a paper and book. uh, He large study he put out. It looks like in the late seventies post this, uh, but it absolutely involves Artaud, which is, I've got to read this book now. Like it's just never stops. Um, I'm going to read uh, through the next paragraph. Are we good? Do I, I'm sorry, I missed a lot of that. I've been trying to figure this one out. Uh, because Andre Green is the next paragraph. When Andre Green looks for the reasons that establish the affinity of psychoanalysis with the theatrical and structural representations it makes visible, he offers two that are especially striking. The theater raises the familial relation to the condition of a universal metaphoric structural relation, whence the imagery, place, and interplay of persons derives, and inversely, the theater forces the play and the working of machines into the wings, behind a limit that has become impassable, exactly as in fantasy the machines are there, but behind the wall. In short, the displaced limit no longer passes between objective representation and desiring production, but between the two poles of subjective representation, as infinite imaginary representation and as finite structural representation. Thereafter, it is possible to oppose these two aspects to each other, the imaginary variations that tid toward the night of the indeterminate or the non-differentiated, and the symbolic invariant that traces the path of the differentiations. The same thing is found all over, following a rule of inverse relation or double bind. All of production is conducted into the double impasse of subjective representation. Oedipus can always be consigned to the imaginary, but no matter, it will be encountered again, stronger and more whole, more lacking and triumphant by the very fact it is lacking. It will be encountered again in its entirety in symbolic castration. And it's a sure thing that structure affords us no means for escaping familialism. On the contrary, it adds another turn. It attributes a universal metaphoric value to the family at the very moment it has lost its objective literal values. Psychoanalysis makes its ambition clear. To relieve the waning family, to replace the broken down familial bed with the psychoanalyst's couch, to make it so the analytic situation is incestuous in its essence, so that it is its own proof or voucher on par with reality. Yeah. 
trying to like you this is where this is what we were discussing before and this is you know <laughs> we should have read that instead of discussing it uh anyone have questions or thoughts here because it feels like that was uh very particular and actually fairly decently spelled out as far as this stuff goes please ask questions though because uh, one thing i would I'll just ask. Uh, they were talking about the theater here and uh, put the things behind the wall. Uh, would this apply to film and television as we know it today because of the same reasoning? Mm -hmm. Or the individual and the pre-individual processes that actually produce the metastable individual that is given as, mm -hmm. you know, the character on set. Reminds me of a, one of my favorite uh, movies, Synecdoche, New York, in the line, uh, everyone is the lead in their own play. Which is a really good line, uh, but interesting through this lens, for sure. <clears throat> to uh, continue, in the final analysis, it is indeed what is at issue, as Octave Minoni shows. How can belief continue after repudiation? How can we continue to be pious? We have repudiated and lost all our beliefs that proceeded by way of objective representations. The earth is dead. The desert is growing. The old father is dead, the territorial father, and the son too, the despot Oedipus. We are alone with our bad conscience and our bedroom, our boardroom, our boredom. Our life where nothing happens, nothing left but images that revolve within the infinite subjective representation. We will muster all our strength so as to believe in these images from the depths of a structure that governs our relationships with them and our identifications as so many effects of the symbolic signifier. The good identification. We are all Archie Bunker at the theater, shouting out before Oedipus, there's my kind of guy, there's my kind of guy. Everything, the myth of the earth, the tragedy of the despot is taken up again as shadows projected on a stage. The great territorialities have fallen into ruin, but the structure proceeds with all subjective and private re-territorializations. What a perverse operation psychoanalysis is, where this neo-idealism, who am I echoing with? That's you, Lou. Um, the, uh, where was I? This uh, cult. This, uh, what a perverse operation psychoanalysis is, where this neo-idealism, this rehabilitated cult of castration, this ideology of lack culminates. The anthropomorphic representation of sex. In truth, they don't know what they are doing, nor what mechanism of repression they are fostering, for their intentions are often progressive. But no one today can enter an analyst's consulting room without at least being aware that everything has been played out in advance. Oedipus and Constration, the imaginary and the symbolic, the great lesson of the inadequacy of being or of dispossession. Psychoanalysis as a gadget. Oedipus as a re-territorialization, a re-timbering of modern man on the rock of castration. So that's the thing. Psychoanalysis becomes a technology of power, you know? And when it says you're being castrated into the imaginary, they are actually castrating you into that office. They are imposing this form and into this general subjectivity of, of, uh, uh, of things. And, you know, you're, you're being reinterpreted so the, the the problem is not the way you live your life or whatever it's the interpretation and the reinterpretation that is being uh done into the clinic so when do you say like the the the, 
the earth is dead and I'm, I'm reading the French at the same time. So like, I'm, I might say like incorrect uh, concepts, but this is the, the real does not matter anymore. It's, it's only representations that are being uh, cared upon. I, I like the, uh, the use of Archie Bunker here uh, for those does everyone here know who Archie Bunker is? I'm going to assume not everyone because I'm old, I think, the way that it works. Um, Archie Bunker from uh, classic television played the role um, of the old man in Changing Times who would sit in his chair, have a beer, and talk about Meathead, his idiot son-in-law, and his beautiful daughter, and how the world's changing and was racist, but in like that way that like a lot of our parents or grandparents are, uh, but uh, sick of a world that's shifting in front of them. And I really like the idea that we are all Archie Bunker at the theater shouting out before Oedipus. There's my kind of guy. That's my kind of guy. Um, that's I think it's uh, a form of reactionary identification. I, I I have to assume so. I, Archie Bunker, by nature, was more on the reactionary side, but showed a caring. Like he's what he's known for is being reactionary but caring. Uh, the blacks moved into the neighborhood, and oh my God, it was the Jeffersons. I think was actually who they were, and he didn't want them there. But then he grew to love them, and like uh, the racist with the heart of gold trope, very much is Archie, Archie Bunker personified. But the idea of uh, Archie Bunker at the theater is shouting, "That's my kind of guy." That's that's the way it should be. This is the this is where I come from. That's what I'm aspiring towards. Uh, that's who we all are. As we kind of, in reality, around us, the real doesn't. It's gone. It's fucking desert, as they said. The earth is dead. The desert growing. All of this is gone. We're at the theater, keeping these things alive in our subconscious and unconscious, whatever you want to say. And. And also, when they call psychoanalysis as neo-idealism, you know, it's a like restored cult of castration, and uh, so like it's 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 something because you know, like in in their ontology, it's a true materialist ontology. So they're attacking um, psychoanalysis on this base, also that you know, it's idealism is something that is always false, that it does not relate to like reality, that it's like it functions for itself. So this this all it's just not a, a condemnation of psychoanalysis, but also a condemn, condemnation of representation and you know different idea. Well, just ideology in itself. And I think here is where we see why Zizek really, really fucking hates Deleuze. <laughs> oh, because they they're two poles of the the same argument. I'd argue they have a lot more common ground than either one wants to let on, but for sure, uh, I definitely lean more on this side of things, although I really enjoy the, the Zizek mentality. But yeah, this is saying ideology as a concept, at least as we know it through psychoanalysis, is gone. It's uh, We're now dealing with structures and the machines that build them. Well, and to expand on Roger's point too, like as I read new idealism there too, they're attacking... So to, to, so to further his argument, they're specifically attacking the idea that what matters is we get it mentally correct, right? So like you guys are talking about the real um, and in, in this sort of material sense as well. But I also see this as kind of doubling it back, since we're, we're talking about Zizek and Lacan here, doubling back on the idea that, well, if we get the structure right, that should fix things. 
the the structurality is no guarantee of um of a uh, a corrected productivity is it well unfortunately i'm going to have to be somewhat benignly hypocritical and make a small little early in my um tearing with lacan small defense it's not necessarily clear yet to me at least whether or not um lacan is simply just structural like you know i think uh there is a question around whether or not he creates a structuration to try to account for that very thing that he cannot objectify that being the subject and you know yeah so it's it's interesting because he does go into using uh diagrams and math and all of that so it's 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 still a big question down the road in the kind of more advanced later lacan um whether or not there is various overlaps with uh with some of this stuff this anti-edipus stuff i i i wholly agree with you and i think a lot of um I, I would, and it's why I, I say that I think Zizek as well has a lot more in common with Deleuze than he wants to let on. Um, I, I think, again, the time frame of this, when look what Lacan had written so far, what he went on to write, what Deleuze had written and went on to write in Guattari as well, I think uh, the timing of this against those other things, I think is the important thing to really take away from this because a lot of those discussions have changed drastically. Um, um, there's a there's a handful of Lacanian psychoanalysts now who I think steal a lot or utilize a lot uh, from uh, sort of Deleuze's machinic unconscious conceptions that I think, you know, Lacan, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, a lot of what Lacan went on to do and spent a lot more time in Ekrit's and a few others uh, is is around actually the idea of being multivocal. Um, there's a... There's a there's a, 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 a multiplicity inside of us. Uh, he spent a lot more time discussing that kind of thing rather than just having this sort of uh, singular unconscious. So there's I, 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 there's a lot of things I think that uh, after this book came out, uh, things started to go. But in fact, three, two paragraphs ago when no one made a comment and I what. Well, didn't make a comment myself. I th I felt like they were kind of touching into a concept which they don't. I don't think they ever even mentioned the word in here, which is a, you know, uh, an ontological um, building block for Lacanian theory, and that's a jouissance. But I think two paragraphs ago, when they were talking about the lack, they were hinting and tracing out a little bit of uh, jouissance. Um, yeah, but I can only say I can't say much more about that right now. No, I I want to make sure we read out. Uh, Lou posted Terrence Blake, who uh, once again, thank you, Terrence, and know you listen to this. Um, a tweet of his uh, from August uh, to develop my idea third further. I think that Latour and Zizek are more Deleuzian than the Deleuze scholars of today. Deleuze said very explicitly, "If you don't like my word, throw it out. Use your own words." Uh, and I think, I, I, again, I think the ideas of what they're trying to get at and how these things work 
Um, and I know people have jumped on me for utilizing the word ideology when we talk about how the machine unconscious works and these other things, but I think there's, um, I think there's applications. Yeah, and that's a lot of criticism that is happening today uh, with the materialists uh, from from the realists, and they're saying that, you know, the materialists are more idealists than the idealists themselves. So you know, there's always like a weird thing going on, and you know, if you like focus on material too much, you will end up in idealism, and if you're focusing on focusing on ideology for enough of a time, you'll go back to the material aspect. So like, it's you know, it's I think it's like a battle of churches or, you know, or schools of thought. But um, yeah, so like if we, I think that makes sense into what you referred by uh, Mr. Blake, what he said, that if you just stick with, if you make a church out of Deleuze, you would make an idealist out of Deleuze. I'll just go with my favorite Buddhist saying. Uh, Buddha once said that if he ever came across the Buddha, as a child, he would kill it immediately. Uh, the The idea of having dogmatism as any part of anything that is intended to be about change and becoming, I think, is laughable on its face. So, also the uh, quote from Rosie Predotti who said uh, that most Deleuzeans are awfully uh, early pearl today. <laughs> yeah, I would. I like that. Um, but with that, I am going to close out today's discussion. Uh, as Lou had mentioned, we are taking our time through this rather than charging through. I do believe this entire section is the book. Uh, the rest of the book is the support structure for this section. And I think there's a lot for us to go through in order to really understand it. And I think it's worth taking time. So uh, we are gonna continue uh, probably next week, Monday noon uh, to continue going through this. And I thank all of you uh, for joining us and helping us uh, parse these ideas across multiple thinkers and all of your backgrounds. Your lenses are incredibly important to us and we thank you.